birth of a baby is a defining moment in a woman's life. But what about the birth of a mother? That's right, when a baby is born, so too is a mother. This transition from woman to mother has a name. It's called matrescence. This developmental stage is as powerful and irreversible as adolescence, and yet few women have ever heard of it. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. Each episode, we will bring you honest and thought-provoking conversations, evidence-based research and knowledgeable guests in order to help you emerge a more powerful and aligned version of yourself. So join us, your hosts, Kelly and Bree, as we attempt to make sense of our matrescence journey and to help you make sense of yours. Good morning, Alex. Good morning. Thank you for joining me this morning. I'm super excited. Me too. So do you want to start by telling us a little bit about who you are, where you're from and what you do for WAC? Sure. Yes. And thank you so much for having me, Brie. It's, it's, I think I said to you when you asked me, it's a real thrill to um, be considered. So i um, very excited to have a chat today. Um, so yeah, my name's Alex, um, Brisbane born and raised, um, very much a creature of comfort and like like what I like and like staying living where I live. Same. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I have. I'm a clinical psychologist by trade. Um, I um, yeah, obviously did all my schooling here in Brisbane, and I went to a um, a private school here in Brisbane, which I feel is important to mention based on what we might get to mm. down the track. Um, and then did the usual straight in straight off to uni. Did my four-year um, degree with first-class honours. Um, you know, got the Australian Psychological Society Prize for top in, first in year and got the university medal and um, all those things. And I, and I, you know, I say them a bit um, casually that, you know, they, they meant a lot to me at the time. Mm. But, again, I think coming back um, through a different lens now, they feel a bit different. Um, I think it's definitely relevant to this conversation. But also I love to see women you know, being honest about their achievements, not downplaying them. So power yeah, to you. Thank you. Yeah, I do I do feel a, a sense of pride um, in what I've achieved in intellectually and academically. Um, so, yeah, finished honours and then um, had my sort of carefree time where I didn't quite know do I, do I want to be a psychologist, um, you know, because it's a really long road. It's, a, you know, you do your mm. undergrad. Like I did a Bachelor of Psychological Science for four years solid, you know, wrote a thesis, did all of that, and then you come out of that basically able to do nothing. <laughs> you know, well, I could be a – you know, you can't be a psychologist based on that. Totally. Um, so just to confirm, usually you graduate from uni with a degree and you go work in that field. Psychology is not quite the same. No, no, it's not. You, you have to do some further qualification, either postgraduate um, university qualification or you have to go on and do really structured, quite intensive, supervised practice okay. um, with, yeah, a registered um, psychologist. Now, I haven't asked you this, but what was your thesis on? Oh, this is so interesting. Um, so I've, re- I've done two theses. I did my honours thesis and then I've done my doctoral thesis and both the topics, I can see why I did them at the time, but it was, if I had my time again, no way. Yeah. Um, not because, like, you know, I always say so much about psychology is just inherently interesting. Like as humans, we can find something to be interested about. Um, But, yeah, again, I think it's so relevant to what we're going to talk about today. So my honours thesis was on um, synchronic imitation 
um, and the differences in that between children um, with autism and and, um, typically developing children. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was looking at really young kids like in, um, yeah, like I was going to kindies and daycare centres. And honestly, I, I really was drawn towards that topic because of the supervisor. I just, it was a lecturer I'd had and um, he and I had a really good rapport and I liked the way that he worked and that was sort of his area. Um, and I was, I had no, I had absolutely no idea what I liked or <laughs> what I was interested in even at that age. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I went on to do my doctoral thesis, so after two years off after honours, um, you know, travelled, moved out of home. I was still living at home. Yeah, moved out of home. Um, worked, um, earned some money, (laughs) fabulous. Um, and then thought, no, you know, I am actually going to go back and do my postgrad. Um, I'd worked at the UQ center for clinical research, which was quite new at that point. It's based out at the Royal Brisbane hospital. Um, and I was working on reception, like awesome. (laughs) That was just (laughs) what I needed at that time. But um, it re-peaked my interest in the brain because there was a really, um, yeah, sort of high-profile surgeon there who was doing really cool things with, like, deep brain stimulation Mm -hmm. for people with um, Alzheimer's and Tourette's and things like that. Um, So, yeah, that helped me to feel like, okay, I'm going to go back and do this. Um, and I applied to all the normal unis. I was interviewed and offered a place at all of the unis, which was, um, really nice to be in a position of choice. Um, and again, I think just speaks to the, you know, it's like 10% of people get, um, offered a place, um, in any of those courses. So to be offered at all of them was, was huge at that Mm. time. Um, and made such a good choice and headed to QUT and did my, um, it's called a, a professional practice doctorate. So it's not quite a PhD. Um, it's like a, yeah, a clinical doctorate. Um, and, um, yeah, so I did that. And my thesis in those years was on, again, there's always the, like, wordy psychological jargon at the start, but it was on metacognition in eating disorders. Ooh. So, yeah, so I kind of lived and breathed eating disorders for a solid two years. Um, and the research that we did was really cool. We actually created like this transdiagnostic model of metacognition in eating disorders, which hadn't been done at that point. Um, but again, my way in, I rem- I distinctly remember having such a struggle trying to think about what am I going to research? Like, what am I on earth? Am I going to do this thesis on? Mm. Um, and in the end, I knew that I there was something about eating disorders that was interesting to me, um, which, again, I think they're fascinating for a lot of people, you know, in a lot of ways. Um, but in the end, I think, you know, like my mum was chronically eating disordered from the time she was probably about 15, mm. um, really right up until her death. Um, but so I, re- I look back and I think, man, there I was just trying to understand my mum you know Mm. through and and that was the avenue that it took um but anyway I I did it and I enjoyed it for for what it was um so yeah I graduated in 2012 went straight into work in private practice as a clinical psychologist which at that time was a pretty brutal road to take it's nothing like it is now where we are crying out for psychologists Mm. at that time it was hard going finding work um as a new graduate um 
And private practice was my last option because it just triggered all of my neuroses and anxieties about myself and my abilities and am I good enough and what am I doing, you know. Mm. And also I looked really young, which didn't help. Um, But as it turned out, I I joined a beautiful practice um, based in Cleveland um, and was really beautifully nurtured by the director of that practice. Um, And then because I was the young kid on the block, I started to get more and more of the child and adolescent referrals, um, which was typically something I'd always been like, oh, no, I don't really do children. Like, it's not my (laughs) – give me an adult who has a brain that I can really talk to. You know, I'm a a talker. Um, But, yeah, then it it turned out I actually quite enjoyed it. Um, And then a job came up at the high school that I attended um, and it just – everything just kind of felt like it worked out the way it needed to. So after two years in private practice, I went to work at an all girls um, private school in Brisbane and was there for seven years. Um, And during that time I had my daughter and so had um, about 15 months off the maternity leave. Um, And then just this year I've started um, at another, a new, um, yeah, high school in Brisbane, a co-ed private school. Um, Amazing. That's a very long answer to your question. And I'm sitting here listening, and to be completely honest, like some of it's going in one ear and out the other. Totally. Like metacognition. I know. But impressive <laughs> nonetheless. <laughs> now, I'm going to throw you a curveball here yes. and ask you about how we connected. Yes. What's led to us being oh, here today? I'm like, because your, it's a cool story. Yeah, I'm your number one stalker, <laughs> Brie. It's. Um, <laughs> So I'd been following you for a while, not like not before I had my daughter, but at some point I'd say in more recently, actually, like maybe in the last year or two, I'd, I'd started to follow you on Instagram. Um, and then I'd noticed a couple of times you'd posted stories about um, the high school that you went to, um, which as it turns out is now where I'm currently working. Um, and just I'd noticed some of the areas you were in. I was like, oh, it looks like you might be in the same area. And then um, because I started a new job this year, my daughter started at a new um, daycare, uh, which is local to where we live. Um, and then I was just watching your stories one day and I was like, what? That's where, she, that's where <laughs> my daughter goes. Like, that, that is her daycare. Um, so then I sent you a message on Insta, um, which you didn't see which because didn't obviously see. I'm one of like 11,000 people who message you. But I later found it in my like... My unread, you know, there's like yes. a little file that I have to approve them to come into my normal messages. No, so I, I don't know. I don't. It. It's a thing. <laughs> and it's a scary place, right? If anyone's ever going to send me a mean message, it's mm-hmm. someone who's never contacted me before. So totally. all the mean messages are in there. And yeah. sometimes I just can't bring myself to go in. Absolutely. So I, I didn't see it. No. no. And, and I didn't, I actually didn't expect you to. Um, but then thankfully one day we were doing pickup at the same time and, um, so I was like, oh, great. Hi. And I'm like, and you're who like, is this? What? And I'm trying to rack my brain. Like, okay, she's she's saying hi as if she knows me, right? Yes. And I cannot place her face yes. anywhere. Because you have like, never seen it before. <laughs> so you probably, like, saw that moment of panic across my no, face. No, I think you, you managed it very well. And I think oh, I quickly no. said, Brie, you don't know me at all. I, I know you. Um But it was really lovely because after that then you sort of put up on your, your stories. Like, I met a lovely mother today, Alex, yes. hi. And so then we I couldn't find your message then and I'm like, oh, I want to connect with her. But, yeah, um, yeah. And so then we, yeah, we had a play date, I think, with the kids and um, 
they tolerated each other so that we could chat. Yeah. <laughs> um, but actually, I think they did develop a little soft spot for each other. I think so too. Yeah. But also selfishly, I, I feel like so many of my friendships are centred around our children. Mm. And while the kids get on well enough, mm-hmm. we went to dinner last weekend, just the two of us, and I'm kind of like, I like that this is just us. Like, mm. our main point of connection is us and our lived experiences and our ability to get on and all the good things. And, like, selfishly, I'm like, no, you guys can, like, do your own thing. We totally. <laughs> want to have grown-up time. And yeah. um, so it's been really lovely. I think we've probably met maybe four times now, but I yeah. feel like we chat as if we've known each other for like years absolutely i remember that there was a birthday party we went to and Mm. yeah we just ended up it was like probably an hour and a half of us just following the kids around chatting and just yeah finding all these points of commonality and similarity and yeah so it's been cool so now i'm like your actual friend it's awesome (laughs) and i did the same thing to kel when i met her she was like hi i'm kelly oh i know you very well yes i I know (laughs) i know more about you than you know about yourself absolutely (laughs) oh i love that all right so let's get to the point of today yes (laughs) because we could talk forever about absolutely nothing but today we're going to talk about the concept of the good child the good baby how that plays into our experience of being a mom and striving to be a good mom so where we're going to start today is chatting about the good baby concept. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm sure like you, like me, you have had this <laughs> question before, is she a good baby? Mm-hmm. Is he a good baby? Mm-hmm. Now, when Taj was little and I got this question, I had this like real split experience immediately. I was like, yes, yes, mm. of course he is. And yeah. internally I was like, I am straight up lying to this person <laughs> because I know what they're asking and yeah. no, he doesn't, he doesn't fit that, that criteria. Yeah. So can you tell me a little bit about your experience with this question, what you think people are actually asking mm. when they ask a new mother mm-hmm. whether their baby is a good baby or not mm-hmm. and how this can make new mums feel? Absolutely, yeah. Um, oh, it's become just one of my most, um, not triggering, but sort of most detested questions, you know, that idea mm. of is, is is she a good baby and is she sleeping well yet? Um, so I guess... Like in thinking about that concept of the good baby, I actually think what it comes down to is people are asking, is your baby able to take care of your needs Mm. so that life feels easy and manageable for you? And I think like um, that that is the basic central theme, I think, that then sets a child up for their experience of the world. Um, and, you know, I think it's not I, – I have struggled in thinking about some of these concepts since becoming a mum with – it's not about, like, blame or it's someone's fault. You know, I think every parent is absolutely doing the best they can with what they've had, mm. you know, what how they were parented and what they know and their experiences. Um, but I do think it, it comes from this central premise of, um, you know, yeah, is your baby – um, making life easy for you, you know, mm-hmm. um, and therefore are they good? Um, you know, for for me, <clears throat> when I had my daughter, you know, it was, I was in a very, very traumatic really time of my life. My mum was really unwell. Um, she'd been diagnosed with um, cancer in May 2017. I fell pregnant in August 2017, had my daughter um, in May 2018, and then my mum died in July of 2018, so when my daughter was eight weeks old. Mm. Um, And, you know, I went into that 
um, as a very good girl. You know, I've, I'm, I'm the definitive good baby, good child, good adolescent, good adult, good girl. Um, and even though I've done quite a lot of my own work, um, you know, through my study and also personally, um, through therapy, um, I just was so unprepared for the reality of what a baby actually is. Um, and, you know, so in my mind, a lot of what was happening was this is just not how it's meant to be. Like it should not be like this, that this baby, um, just cries all the time, you know, and, and just doesn't sleep, Mm. just really doesn't sleep, you know? And I think, um, you know, that's a big part of the good, the good baby is, yeah. Are they, do they sleep so that you as the parent get time for yourself? Um, and I still, to this day, I, I'm, I'm constantly reframing, you know, and people say, oh, is she a good sleeper? Um, I often say, look, she's not an easy sleeper. Um, yeah, sleep has never been easy for her. Um, you know, so just trying to reframe that this is not about good or bad, which is mm. such a um, dichotomy and it just sort of splits everything. And, and it's moral, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It places this level of judgment, you know, mm. um, from others and from within ourselves. And that, you know, I, yeah, I think mothers struggle a lot with that concept of, like you were saying, like internally, we're like, oh my God, no, they're not a good baby because mm. X, Y, Z. Yeah. I'm thinking about the fact that so much of what we're asking when we ask if they're a good baby is centered on, you know, are they quiet mm-hmm. and are they compliant? Yeah. You know, do they sleep well? what we mean is do they sleep like adults, you know, relatively uninterrupted? Do they sleep independently? Do they sleep long stretches, as you said, so that you can get good quality sleep? Mm -hmm. Do they feed well, but not feed often? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, are they quiet? Do they not cry too much? Are they attached, but not too attached? You know, it's like this perfect sweet spot. And like you, most of us come into motherhood with not a lot of idea about how babies really live their life, you know, we are not mothering in close proximity to other mums who have no. gone before us or are doing it with us. So we're not seeing the reality of normal infant behaviour. And I think, sorry, it's like on that, even when, you know, like I'd had a, a bunch of really close friends who had had babies in the two years before, say. So I'd seen them go through things. I knew some of their experience and I'd had them like I had had some of them be really honest and open with me about like, this is hard and these are the things. So I even felt like I had that, but I still in my mind, I think there's a part that's sort of, well, that, that won't be me. Mm. You know, that's not what my experience will be. So I, I think it is really difficult to be adequately like emotionally, intellectually prepared. Like how do you do that? Um, yeah. But yeah, we're not set up for it. You're right. And I think that part of that is likely the fact that, you know, we almost wear this mask when we're in public with our babies of trying to fit into that good baby, good mother, yeah. you know, role. And so often, you know, like when, when Taj was a baby, if he was really unsettled, I would take him away from everybody to calm mm-hmm. him down. Or, you know, if he feed it, wanted to feed all the time, I would just park myself in the back room because I didn't want other people's judgment. I didn't want to bother them. So often, even if you are in close proximity to young babies you're not seeing the reality you know we kind of contain that and save it for when we're at home the you know emotional breakdowns about how hard it is and the you know take the makeup off and you see how tired you know Mm -hmm. you really look and you know it's often done behind closed doors 
And part of the challenge, I think, is that when we talk about good babies, often what we kind of glamorize and um, put on a pedestal is baby is behaviors that are not biologically normal. So, yeah. you know, things such as frequent night wakings are not only biological biologically normal from infancy, right? You know, through to toddlerhood and mm. beyond. They're also yeah, protective adulthood. against SIDS. That is something that we believe helps you know, increase children's chances of survival Mm -hmm. through that real critical period is being able to arouse easily. Mm -hmm. So it's like, well, a baby that wakes frequently is definitely a good baby. Like (laughs) that baby's going to live. Yeah. Right. It's a super normal and also like advantageous characteristic. But then, you know, when we place judgment on babies who do that, Mm -hmm. mums and parents end up in this predicament of going, well, there must be something wrong with my baby or there must be something wrong with With me. me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, yeah, it's very, you know, this concept of the good baby very much exists in that relationship, you know, between Mm. the, you know, and it normally, it usually is, I think, the mother and the baby. I mean, sometimes the primary attachment figure or the primary caregiver might not be the mother, but I think there is something very specific about that mother-baby relationship. Um and yeah, I mean, it's so, it's so consuming. Um, and I think it's that, you know, beca- because of, it's like one reflects the other, but there's such a huge power imbalance and mm. experience difference. And, you know, so this poor, this little six week old baby, um, can't really let you know what they need, you know, yes, that she screams all the time. Um, but, you know, the owl scream versus the e scream, mm. but like you know, all of I those things that those. are never like I was like I can't even. It's just it's screaming, all the same. yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just dysregulating, and I can't. You know, I'm dysregulated, and mm. and who needs what? Um, but so yeah, I do think it becomes very murky about like yeah, who 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 is the good one? Yeah. Um, and whose needs are we focusing on here? Whose needs are we trying to meet? Um. Yeah, this reminds me, one one memory that comes up here for me is the time when we were at my mother-in-law's and I my sister-in-law was there too. And they were very much on the independent sleep, sleep training mm-hmm. um, train. Yep. Now, so were we at yep. that point and they were really another step further. And so they were, you know, without sharing too much of their personal experience, they put their baby down. There was lots and lots of screaming, but the baby then went to sleep independently mm. and I could not get Taj to sleep on his own. Mm. And I was getting so frazzled and so frustrated. Not The fact that he wouldn't sleep didn't even bother me. Mm-hmm. Like, if he didn't want to sleep, no big deal. But yeah. I was feeling the pressure to prove that I could do the same, yeah. you know, that I was a good mum, that I had been able to master this. And those feelings of failure were just so incredibly strong in that moment. Mm-hmm. And I wish I could just, like, go back and give her a hug. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking about the fact that, you know, our experience of mothering is so shaped by this, well, what is a myth, right? Mm -hmm. And that we are being judged 
by behavior that we have little to no control over, mm-hmm. right? We, we mm-hmm. have very little control over how our kids sleep. We are now both four and a half years mm-hmm. roughly into our mothering journeys and we still both have children that struggle yep. with sleep, right? Yep, absolutely. And in hindsight, it's so easy to look at that and be like, oh gosh, you know, I was trying to control something that was uncontrollable. Mm-hmm. But in the moment when you're told this is within your control, you just need to, you know, figure it out. It's a lot of pressure. It's huge. And, I mean, you know, we, like, our experience of that, like, I I guess I I knew enough about – sleep um and about and and so i had i i had a very clear sense from the get-go that that sleep training wasn't something that felt like it fit for for me and for us um my husband might have felt a bit differently at various stages and 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 it was for sure it was something that i went back to and considered a number of times but you know we embraced co-sleeping quite early on um well embraced is probably too kind a word we co-slept <laughs> from quite early on when my daughter was 10 or 11 months old you know we embraced that fact that every sleep needed to be needed to have us involved needed to be contact you know the carrier was just with us all the time but even then she would scream and scream and scream for 15, 20, 30 minutes sometimes before she would fall asleep. Um, so, you know, I, I, I sort of felt like, okay, well, I've already, ex- I've already accepted the failure that I can't get, you know, the baby to sleep independently. I'm doing everything that you need, you know, mm. you're attached to me all the time. I'm, I'm res- responding in inverted commas, you know, I'm here. And I was so fearful of having that sense of abandonment or not being there if she did need me and still mm. it was torture so you know? hard um so it's and, and and i think all of that actually does connect back to that sense of of the good baby because i wanted to be the good mother mm. and so i was doing all of these things to that aim um but i actually think my daughter was she is such a persistent and perceptive little thing. And she was screaming because she was saying to me, but mommy, you're not actually here. Mm. You're, you're with me. Um, but you're not actually here in the, like, because there were, I did, I still, even three years ago, did not have a good enough sense of myself, a solid enough sense of that for her to know that when she's strapped to my chest, I'm actually there with her. Mm, so you were um, going through the motions, but it wasn't quite connecting for yeah, her. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I think that's, you know, that is what I start to see in my work, you know, when I, yeah, obviously I work primarily with um, adolescents, um, you know, some of whom high school starts at 11 now, so they're still very little. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, you know, I see these kids and I can see already that um, not all of them, obviously, and I, I have to remind myself I see a, a specific proportion of the school population, um, you know, in my role as a school psychologist. Um, but, yeah, you see these um, kids, I think, who were still crying out and who were still sort of trying to help their parents to see, you're not, you're not really here with me. You know, um, I'm going through the motions and I'm doing all these things and I'm achieving really well. But who am I? And who are you? And where are you? Mm. Um, so I think it's it. Yeah, it really sets that experience as a good baby. 
um, can really set a certain trajectory um, in in life. Yeah, and I think that it reminds me of, you know, that next level of letting go that I had to do when Emmy was born of, you know, we completely changed our approach and mm. I went with that real responsive. We are bed sharing, we mm-hmm. are contact napping. And I almost felt like, entitled to have no suffering as a result like I am giving you my all I am doing what is best practice and so therefore it shouldn't be hard and I shouldn't be sleep deprived and you know what I mean I really had that entitlement and that's where the martyrdom thing comes in you know it's like I am yeah I am responding to all of I'm giving you everything of Mm. all of me Um, and that's where I think you know you've been you've been able to so beautifully articulate recently your yeah, shifting in that of like actually what's good for my baby is what's good for me yeah. um, and for my nervous system and for my mental health. Yeah. Um, and that children will still have feelings. They will yes. still still need to express those and they will still need time to wind down to sleep and they will still need to wake up even if you are doing all, all of the, in air quotes, right things, yeah. that they're still human beings having a human experience. Absolutely. I'm really curious to hear what that experience was like for you. Now, obviously you had a lot going on at that time Mm. but my perception is that you went through life went through school went through university really being able to achieve and work hard and have that payoff and Mm -hmm. problem solve and then you land in motherhood and it doesn't quite work like that right the ultimate equalizer (laughs) yes so what was that like for you it was absolutely terrifying it was yeah honestly I just feel like I was I was frozen in fear um, for at least six months, um, but probably then in varying forms of that really up until maybe six months ago. Like, Mm. um, yeah, it's a terrifying thing to have lived a life where, um, yeah, you've got, you know, and and I guess the, um, the thing about that concept of whose needs are being met and a good baby really um, unconsciously trying to meet the needs of, of the parent is that that sets up this kind of experience that I know the way that I know that I'm okay and that I'm good is based on what I'm producing and what what people can see and their mm. response to that so you know that's sort of how my life went you know and and you know I, I say again my you know love my parents to death they did the absolute best they could my mom no one gave more to motherhood than my mom you know she was an 150 percent kind of person um all the time but then she would sort of collapse she would sort of have these times where like overnight I don't think she was really available to me at all as a baby I slept through the night in inverted commas from six weeks old um so yeah I'd kind of grown up yeah being able to know that I was okay because I kept ticking all the boxes and um, getting stuff right. And people would tell you you're doing great. That's right. Awards would validate that. Absolutely. And 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 I also had the flip side of that of of you know which at the time I didn't know what it was, but the intense anxiety and fear of what if I don't? You know, Mm. no one can get can be that good all the time. You know, can be that good all the time, a hundred percent. So I would have, yeah, I would be in tears because I only got the the distinction, not the high distinction on the certain thing. And even at uni, in undergrad, I remember coming out of exams and bursting into tears because I didn't, you know, do well enough. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, I came into motherhood with that as my, uh, on my resume, that's my experience. Um, 
and then had, yeah, a very unsettled baby, um, which threw me into, yeah, just absolute tailspin of like, I don't, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to try something and not be good at it straight away, you know, and not have other people see that I'm doing really well. Um, and in fact, probably other people did see that I was doing really well, you know. Um, I mean, especially under the circumstances, it sounds like just to keep your head above water, you were doing an incredible job. Well, yeah, and I mean, you know, we, like, I, we thankfully had thought about, we were very clear about our time in hospital. We really wanted that just to be us. We didn't have any visitors um, except our immediate family. Um, and we actually requested, we stayed an additional night there because um, our daughter did not sleep a wink. <laughs> um <laughs> So we were just terrified. We're like, we can't how do we can't take this home. Mm. Um but even, you know, I remember in those first probably four to six weeks, we every other day we'd have people over and we'd put the food out and mm. we you know, I'd be dressed and you know, and, and and you know, my body um betrayed me in the opposite way to usual. I think I within two weeks of giving birth I was back fitting into all of my size six clothes, looking exactly the same that I did before which completely belied the actual experience I was having but I didn't even know the experience I was having at that time um so yeah I was and I guess in a way my performance my training in performance mode probably did get me through that time Mm. um you know because I I could just suck it up and keep going no matter how awful it was and no matter how just terrified and depressed. I felt anxious, you know. Yeah. Um, but as you said, it was very murky because mum was dying, you know, the yeah, Grace's whole the eight weeks of crossover. You know, I was also trying to get over to see mum, um, you know, so I was <laughs> taking this little four-week-old mm. baby with me to, to see mum and then spend an hour with, you know, this dying woman. Um so I think I spent a lot of time, yeah, sort of being like, well, of course I feel like this. It's yeah. how, how could one not? Um, but, I, yeah, so there are so many layers to it. But, yeah, basically I just I was absolutely terrified and I, um, yeah, performance moded <laughs> my way through it. Absolutely. Um, Something that I often come back to, which is not directly relevant to this conversation, but it's a thought I come back to all the time mm. when I see new mothers, you know, presenting as if everything is fine. Mm-hmm. I've gone through this transformative experience and come outside, but I'm the same woman. I fit into the same clothes. And, mm-hmm. you know, would you like a cup of tea and some yes. cake I made earlier? <laughs> is that all women bleed after mm-hmm. birth? For about six weeks. And I come back to this thought all the time. Doesn't matter how she looks externally, mm-hmm. she is still wearing a giant maxi pad. She's still bleeding. Her uterus is still shrinking. Mm-hmm. You know, like it doesn't matter how we present externally, internally, you know, your boobs are engorged and you're leaking. And I really try to remind that when I see other mums who, you know, from my perspective, are just like killing it. Yeah. You know, in that early phase when I was like such a mess. That it doesn't matter what mask we put on to convince ourselves or convince others. You know, they are still going through this huge transformation, not only like emotionally and psychologically, but also just like at the bare minimum physically. Yeah. And that really connects to, you know, it's like that sense of common humanity that Mm. like as humans and as women, this is what happens. Yeah. And I think, um, 
and actually I know that you have um, I think probably read and thought a bit about that concept of self-compassion. It's something that you have talked about previously, but um, to me that's just like self-compassion in action, you know. Yeah. Um, Kristen Neff is sort of pioneered a lot of the self-compassion research and work in the last decade or two, and she sort of defines that self-compassion has these three components of a kindness, a self-kindness, um, a common humanity, and then a mindfulness so that you can be um, – yeah, just have that sort of um, objective awareness of what's happening and not get, you know, washed away with the emotions or also not trying to sweep them sort of mm. under the rug. Um, so I think that's such a such a beautiful and wise um, response, you know, that you've helped yourself to have that because it's connecting to that sense of common humanity, which then allows you to feel perhaps a bit more compassionate towards yourself and towards the mother who's looking totally. so damn good. Totally. <laughs> This week's podcast is sponsored by Chronicles of Play. Chronicles of Play is run by Erica, a qualified early childhood and primary teacher, a mum, an author, and most importantly, a play advocate. Erica is on a mission to share simple play ideas using items we already have in our homes. Through her Instagram community, she shares a wide range of play ideas for children from newborn to six years and above. There are play ideas for indoors, for outdoors, for toddlers and for newborns. You name the topic and she can probably find a play activity that is well suited to you. A qualified teacher with over 10 years experience, Erica has the knowledge of learning and education and the passion for play to support parents to recognise opportunities for play and learning in our everyday lives. In her book, 365 Ways to Play, parents are given a play prompt for every single day of the year. These play prompts are activities that are simple and easy to set up and only require items we can find in our homes or craft boxes. Chronicles of Play is all about supporting parents to find simple and easy ways to play with children and encourage their growth, development and learning at the same time. To check out Chronicles of Play, you can find them on Instagram at Chronicles of Play or head to their website www.chroniclesofplay.com.au. So talk us through, you get through that initial intense period of Mm. having a newborn. Now, Mm -hmm. I know that sleep didn't get much better for quite a while after the newborn period but as we transition into that toddler stage how Mm. does this concept of the good child change Mm. well I think you know once kids get to a point where they're they're, they are looking and sounding a bit more like a little adult a little Mm. mini adult Mm. it kind of ramps up the expectations of what a good child looks like and does so I think there's yeah a much bigger focus on behavior um, you know, that's that idea of compliance and impulse control. Um, you know, I think emotions and feelings are such a crucial thing at this age, you know, the brain development that's going on. Um, and so a lot of those expectations are around that. It's sort of, you know, it's the classic psychology stuff of like thoughts, feelings and behaviours. Mm. Um And so I think the good toddler, you know, is the one who can follow, who can have their listening ears on and follow the instructions at all times, Um, who's fun and funny and silly and playful, but, you know, who knows when to sit down Mm -hmm. and sit on the square on the mat and, um, yeah, who has impulse control, who's not lashing out, who's 
they're not the one biting or hitting or kicking or spitting, um, which my daughter has done all of. Um, yeah, it's actually such a relief when you get the call from daycare and they're like, "I'm so sorry, someone's bitten your daughter." I'm like, "Oh, oh thank God! Oh, thank God! That's I like, okay, she'll be okay." But okay, they weren't the biter this time. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's all that stuff. Yeah. But then, and I think you know, and the thing that I have found the most challenging is the emotional stuff you know that um yeah toddlers inherently they 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 feel all the things and and bless them for it you know they my daughter has taught me so much about how to feel and about anger um and about yeah just expressing your experience Mm -hmm. um but it's it's very difficult for most adults to tolerate that level of affect, that level of feeling. So before we dive more into what these kind of, you know, expectations mm. are, why do you think that is? Why is it so uncomfortable for us to experience this and hold space for it? I mean, million dollar question, <laughs> but I, I do think a lot of it comes back to what our experience have been. Um, I think a lot of us as children and perhaps it's a generational thing, um, but it, you know, it does go back to the seen, not heard kind of experience. And so I think a lot of us, we, we haven't had a good experience of emotional containment and attunement and validation. Mm. Um, so then when we see a child experiencing an emotion, um, you know, uh, the, the concept of triggering has become really, um, you know, part of the lexicon, but, uh, so I, I use, but I use it quite clinically to say, you know, it really does, it, it, it triggers our central nervous system and it, and it affects us at a very deep level. Um, often that, that I think we're not even aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I think we struggle then t- to manage our own feelings, our own emotions and response enough so that we can then respond genuinely to the child's feelings and emotions. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think often this it's just a completely missing piece um, and we just go straight to be quiet, shh, that's, it's okay, you know, contain, 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 um, yeah. which doesn't do anyone any favours. There's these, like, two things going on here, right, where firstly we feel that their behaviour is reflecting on us as parents mm-hmm. and we have a very, very human need to belong and be accepted by our peers and for others to validate that we're a good mum and we're doing a good job. So we're trying to, you know, exert control over our children to fit them into a box so that we can fit into our little box yeah. and we can all be, you know, approved of and belong. Yeah. And then on top of that, you know, I think a lot of us are intellectually mm-hmm. learning more about parenting and the type of parent we want to be. Yeah. And so then we're trying to offer that to our children, but no one's ever offered it to yes. us, right? So we're trying to hold space for them when no one has ever held space for us through anger. And, you know, so even if intellectually we know what we should be doing, yeah. if our central nervous system isn't you know, being regulated and being tended to and cared for, then trying to do that from a place of authenticity is going to be really tough, right? Absolutely. Could not agree more. Yeah. And, and you know, I think that's, yeah, that, that concept of trying to provide something we, we were never provided with or give something we never got, mm-hmm. um, I think that is a big part of why this is so difficult for, for us and, and for me personally that it's what it's been, you know. So I love hearing about, yeah, the stuff that you've done with Yara and her mm-hmm. course and, and obviously um, Dr Sophie Brock and her work, you know, it's all about that concept of how can, yeah, how can it become more, um, normalize that actually like that 
taking and again like that concept of self-care you know which I do a lot of work in that area and I've yeah I've, I've kind of dragged it into schools you know kicking and screaming um but it's so hard to actually conceptualize um but 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 at its core it's 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 true that you know when we can take care of ourselves and our own feelings and experiences we're going to be better placed to do it for for the little ones yeah it's been probably one of the most um, impactful things I've learned Mm. in my parenthood journey is about the nervous system because I feel like I knew all the things about how to be a gentle parent Mm -hmm. and then I would get in this situation where the behaviour was so uncomfortable for me that I would just yell or, you know, like shut myself in a room or, you know, do these things that didn't feel good for me, but I had, I felt like I had nowhere to go. And then I'd have this shame spiral of, you know, better, Mm -hmm. like, why are you doing this? Mm -hmm. You know, better. Yeah. Yeah. And now, and this is an ongoing process, but being able to identify, like, I am flooded. I am not in a position where I can parent right now. And Mm -hmm. I'll say that to Matt, like, Mm -hmm. I need you to tap me out because I can't parent right now. And it's a privilege to often have him on hand to do that. Because just the other day, I had this experience with Taj where I ended up being, you know, within... I feel, always feel the need to qualify, but within the <laughs> realm of what is, you know, okay and acceptable, of but course. I felt I was too rough and yeah. too aggressive with him yeah. based on the type of parent that I want to be. Yeah. And Matt was at work and I didn't, I didn't know how else to navigate that mm. situation. I couldn't just say, I need to go outside and calm down mm-hmm. for 10 minutes. I mm-hmm. couldn't say, I just need you to be quiet while I calm down or go listen to a guided meditation. Yeah. Like you end up in this position where there's nowhere to run and you just have to like stay in this intensity. Mm-hmm. And often, you know, when we're talking about these behaviours in toddlers or even as they get a little bit older, it feels like an attack on your nervous system, It feels system, so right? personal, yeah. Totally. Yeah. Like when you are being hit or bit or spat mm-hmm. on, mm-hmm. like in any other context, you would react to that. But yes. we are forced and asked to as mothers just contain that mm-hmm. and internalise mm-hmm. it. Validate. And then just, yeah, yeah, come back with a really calm and gentle and validating response. Mm. And that is such a difficult thing, thing to, to learn and yeah. master. And I keep, you know, I keep thinking, oh, my God, I'm running out of time. If I don't master this soon, I've missed that critical window of Mm, early childhood. mm. But it is so challenging. It is. And, yeah, you're right. The pressure is on to be like it's that first 12 months and the first Mm. five years and then it's all set in stone, you know. I'm like, we're four and a half in. We've got time. Time is ticking. (laughs) Really need to make up for lost time (laughs) in the next six months. (laughs) Yeah, but but I think, you know, um, that just made me think too that part of I think what part of the what was missing is the is the actual words you know like the the space of course you need the space for feelings for there to be space for the words Mm. but I think sometimes yeah even even if there's the space finding the words to put to the to mark to your you know the, the parent feeling um and then to the child's feeling um and again that's like for me that's been one of the biggest um struggles and learnings which you know you can imagine the intellectual knowledge I bring to this as a psychologist um, and the pressure that that places Mm. on me but also the sort of difficulty that um, presents in 
my relationship, you know, with, yeah, my husband sometimes being like, just because you're a psychologist, yeah. you don't. I'm like, that's, yeah, you're right. That is off limits uh, in our house. Yeah. It is one of Matt's main thing is never to bring up that he's a counsellor, that he should know better, that he should be able to communicate perfectly. It's like a yeah. totally off the table for us. Yeah. Because it is. It adds a total, another layer of pressure to what yeah. is already a tough situation. A pressure. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so, you know, I think, I yeah, I, I have a lot of intellectual knowledge about this, but, again, and it's that dropping down into that layer of your body and mm. your it is I you know I'm a big believer in the unconscious experience and and how that um, comes into play um, to to find the actual words and and again you know when my daughter and like she, yeah she um yeah she's very feisty she's a classic um you know redhead and um yeah she it's my she, favorite thing about her I know she's so authentic in sharing her feelings and her opinions and her experiences it she, is just beautiful and I often say to you like we need more girls and women who are like that I, I fully agree and and again that's part of what is so difficult because I'm like yeah I, the, great mm. you you tell me how angry you are you know I that's I want that but also can you not because it's really hard for me and when it feels relentless sometimes and but yeah you know sometimes I'm having those exchanges with her and I I can see very clearly she is rageful she is full of anger and I can say that to her, but the the that deeper layer isn't there. You know, mm. I'm saying the words, but within me, I think I'm still actually I'm I'm wanting to acknowledge it, but within me, I'm still being like, but can you not? It's yeah. just I don't I, I want to escape. Go there. Yeah, like, yeah. So I think that's the learning that we're all that we're going to be doing. It's a the rest of our lives as parents. Yeah, and know? it's challenging as well because I think that in that context in your home you can see, and of course you do, you see her as being good, right? Mm-hmm. She's good. She's mm-hmm. explaining her feelings. Yes. She's authentic. She's, you know, look at her regulating her nervous system mm-hmm. through screaming and stomping, yes. like go girl. Yeah. But then when we take them out in public mm. and they're judged by a whole different set of standards mm. for me, and, oh, I wish you guys could see how well Alex does this. The way that you hold space for her in public is incredible. Oh, that's so kind. And really, I aspire to be able to do that. Because when I'm in public, I often find myself wanting to make Taj be just a little bit quieter Mm. and a little bit more Mm self-contained and a little bit more polite so that other people will like him and he will belong and other kids will want to play with him. You know, because we all want our kids to be accepted and to belong and and to know, be a good kid. Yeah, you know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And sometimes other people aren't able to hold space for them in that mm. way. So it's challenging. And Dr. Sophie Brock actually did her PhD on this. It was called, um, I've got this written down. I can't remember it. Anyway, <laughs> what she looked at was the concept of the good child and the good mother yeah. and specifically in relation to children with disabilities and ASD mm. and things like that. Mm-hmm. And it's something that has really come up for me recently because as I've spoken about, these these behaviours that are considered developmentally appropriate when kids are maybe two or three, Tasha's yeah. still displaying. So he will still lash out, he will still kick and he will hit and he will spit when he's dysregulated. Yeah. So just yesterday, this was at a play centre, he'd worked so hard on building something and a kid came and just knocked it over and Aww. he was so upset and just yeah. didn't know what to do with his feelings. And it's really challenging because, you know, now he's four and a half and he Mm. looks like he's four, almost Mm. five, and this is just totally not considered within the realm of acceptable. Mm. And something that I've found coming up for me recently, which, you know, there's a 
totally a layer of shame in admitting is wanting to explain to people, oh, you know, we're, we're going through the process mm. to see if he's maybe ASD or ADHD mm-hmm. to kind of like qualify and legitimize like what is going okay, on yeah. Yeah. and that it is not him, that he's yeah. not a bad child. He's a child that is struggling. Mm. And it's really been quite transformative in my relationship with my parents over the last six months Mm -hmm. is starting to have these conversations. Actually, we think there's something more going on here Mm. because we started to get into a space where they were going, you know, he's naughty. You guys need to have more boundaries. You need to do this. Like you need to control him better. Mm -hmm. And I'm having this internal experience of going, I actually think there's something you know, in air quotes, wrong here. Mm. I think there's something more here. Mm-hmm. But until we were able to identify that and add it to the conversation, they weren't able to, you know, hold space for mm. him and for these behaviours. Mm. So I think that it, you know, is also a point to consider of how, you know, if you have a child who is disabled who or who is neurodiverse, yes. how they're not going to fit into this box of the good child and what this means for parents. And I know Dr. Brock explains this in terms of for some parents it'll be validating, like, all yeah, right, yeah, no point that trying makes to fit in. Yeah. You know, like yeah. I can just you do parent you. how I want to because I am never going to fit into this box of good mum. Yeah. And for others it can be, of course, very distressing. Now, yeah. I don't profess to know what that experience is like for everyone, but I yeah. think that it is at least worth mentioning. Absolutely, yeah. And, I mean, you know, again, um, thinking about the the – kids that I work with currently that Mm. that area of neurodivergence is fast expanding you know and um I you know I think there's always a little bit of that's because we're both more aware and open to um that 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 exists um and I think it's probably more that than that there is more neurodivergence, mm. like, you know, happening. I think it's more about we're actually getting to acknowledge and know, oh, that's actually what it looks like in a teenage girl. Yeah, you know? totally. Um, but, yeah, so, uh, gosh, wouldn't I, I wonder, yeah, some of the things I think about are like what can what can we do within the educational system from from that youngest point to set things up so that they don't get to year 10 and then that's when they go through the process of assessment and diagnosis for mm. ADHD and ASD and they've just masked and, you know, like how can we make that more accessible and, um, you know, how can the system support them better from much earlier on? Yeah. Um, but I think there's the other thing that, that came into my mind when you were talking before about that idea of like that urge that I think all of us have as parents to like just – you know, rein it in, quiet it down, you're in, we're in public, we don't want to, you know. Mm. Um, and and maybe, you know, I think one of the things that has helped me over time is knowing that, like, that makes it heaps worse for me and my daughter, you know. The more yeah. that I try and kind of squish her back into that box, you know, this is where I, I absolutely love her for it and it's one of the most challenging things about it. Like, she will not have it, you know. She is just like, no, mum. This this is where I'm at. This is what I'm feeling, and you will come here with me. Yeah. You know, we're you not doing will. it later. We're doing no, it right, right here, right here now. in the middle of yeah. Kmart, in amongst the sparkly <laughs> shoes, right now. Yeah. You know, um, and that's when yeah, that's when I notice. You know, I get a bit snarky, and you know, that's my tone of voice is not. I'm not being the mum I want to be, but. But at the moment, that's that's the tone of voice I have found to be able to put some words to some genuine words to where she's at and where I'm at, and 
yeah, we had we went to Carindale this week and we had about three of these situations in our time there, you know, where I was down, crouching down and having these conversations. And, um, yeah, so I think it's just that, fi- you know, it's that process of finding the words um, to put to your own experience and, be, and you can say it. You know, I feel like so much of... Um, so much of what makes parenting difficult is feeling like you've got to have it all figured out. Like you've mm-hmm. got to do all the thinking and all that. You've got to have it all figured out before you can kind of present anything. Or maybe that's just me, actually. No, I agree. Um, yeah, before you can kind of present it. Yeah. Um. So I'm really trying to more and more just talk to my daughter about what I'm thinking, you know, yeah. because I think that's one of the ways we can create that space that we talk about. It's like, well, when this is happening, we're figuring this out together. Yeah, like, totally. Being in it with them instead of I'm the adult, I know how to how this will play out and I know all the yes. right words and that kind of thing. It's just like, okay, well, here's where I'm at. I can yeah. see where you're at. And that is so much challenging, more challenging it, it is. Uh, to do in real life than it yes. is to talk about. But that's what we're striving for, right? You've got to strive got to try absolutely so i'd love to hear how you see this play out in schools so Mm -hmm. let's talk about just right down the middle the Mm -hmm. average child you do work in the private school system Mm -hmm. which i do think is relevant yep um you know how do you see these expectations affecting students well you know the rates of depression and anxiety are just skyrocketing um so that has got to tell us something um I think, you know, the classic um, good child at a, at a school um, is, yeah, you know, obviously academically capable, um, is a, a, an easy-to-teach kid, you know, follows instructions, contributes mm. um, effectively. Um, they're involved in a range of different activities, you know, and I, I think the overscheduling of kids is really scary and, and it's mm. happening from a very young age. Um, and of course not, you know, some kids that they will thrive on that genuinely. Um, but my experience would suggest that it's, those are the exception rather than the rule. So yeah, they do some music, they do some sport. Um, and then they go home and they're a really good son or daughter. Um, they do their homework, you know, they look after the pets and all of that, you know, so, um, yeah, they're ticking all those external boxes. Um, and I think, it just comes at a cost, you know, and and um, the cost, I think, for a lot of kids is that sense of they're, they're not actually able to fully, to develop a, sen- a true sense of self mm. because they're, um, they're not able to try and fail. They're not able to say, actually, I'm tired um, and I just need to rest this morning rather than get up and go to training. Um, they're not able to say, I'm really struggling with maths and I think I might need some more support around that. Um, or I know I need to do Math B for the course I want to do at uni, yes. but Math A is where I'm at at the moment. Yes, yeah. Um, and and particularly, I suppose, once they get to, to high school, you know, I, I hear a lot of kids talk about, well, I can't say that to mum and dad because I don't want them to be upset. I don't want to worry them or I don't want them to be, you know, sad or angry. Um, so, you know, they're doing this, you know, they're doing the full-time job of school. They've got the equivalent of an actual part-time job and or several part-time jobs with all their co-curricular stuff. Um, and then they're going home basically still sort of little parents trying mm. to make sure the household's held together. Um, so, you, you know, the pressure um, is just huge 
It's huge. huge. And I think that it's so, like, normalised. Yes. Like... Often we don't even question it. It wasn't yeah. until I was like a few years down the track from graduating that I was like, oh my God, like that was a lot I had on my plate. Yeah. Um, well, and I think that, you know, like you graduated school um, quite a bit more. <laughs> yeah, 10 years <laughs> more recently than I did. Um, <laughs> but so, yeah, it's this is less impactful when I say it now than it was like 10 years ago. But, you know, just looking from the time I graduated high school to now, the ante has upped a hundredfold, mm. like just shockingly so you know like yeah just that baseline level of expectation of what kids need to be able to do um has just increased so dramatically to my eyes totally and it's essentially we're not allowing children even teenagers who are still children to be children right we're we're really preparing them to be future adults we're so future focused like this will get you on the right path for uni and uni will get you on the right path for your job and it's Mm. always like working towards that future Mm. um which often robs them of the experience to be in the here and now and to be a child and i think like you once i graduated i had so much work to do in unpacking and understanding and really just like getting to know myself because I hadn't been allowed to do that um partly just because of the way school is partly because it was a private school partly because of who I was and you know like you I was really that good girl and that high achiever and Mm -hmm. And I remember in my first year of uni, I failed French mm-hmm. <laughs> and crying to my mum on the phone, like absolutely oh, sobbing because I'd never <laughs> failed any, like truly I'd never mm. failed yep. anything. Yeah. And that was the first time. And it was like the best thing that ever happened to me because like I realized that I could survive failure and still be a good person that's, and people would still love me. Yeah. And that's what I've had, you know, I have that conversation all the time with parents, you yeah. know, trying to help them to understand like this is the time, you know, this is the time. And it's so hard to see your child really distressed about this, Mm. but this is the time we want them to fail so that they can have that experience of, okay, I failed on that bit of, on that thing. And my life continues. I'm still me. My friends are still here. My parents still love me, you know, all, all of that. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, did I cut you off? No. Well, I'm oh. just thinking, right, if you don't do it as a teen, you've got to do it as an adult. And it's kind of easier to do it as a teen when, you know, you have loving parents hopefully there to support you and hold yep. space for you through that experience than, yep. you know, when you're that little bit older. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so now I think this is also relevant. I'm not sending Taj to school. Yes. At this point, that absolutely may change. You are sending your daughter to school. Yes. And I know you've thought long and hard about yes. that. So tell me a little bit about what you are going to do to help, you know, really support and nurture her through this process and to, where possible, kind of resist this narrative around you need to be the good child and the good girl. Mm. And also more broadly, what parents can do regardless of, you know, the ages of their children and mm-hmm. whether they're at school or not. Mm-hmm. My my biggest learning from from working in schools and then from having a daughter is is to follow your child so to really try to tune in and get to know who is this kid sitting in front of you right now um the fit between the child and and the schooling experience i believe is the most important thing and i think a lot of the research does show that now you know it's not so much about co-ed versus single sex or private versus public it's about who is the child and what do they need and what's going to help them to thrive um so um and so that means that you know top elite private schools aren't the right fit for everyone um and that's you know that's a head and heart decision we'll have down the track you know having 
yeah, having gone to a, a private school myself, you know, what will what will the options be for our daughter? Um, but, yeah, I guess I, I'm going into the schooling experience. So, yeah, my daughter will start prep next year at this stage. I reserve my final decision until December or maybe even January next year. Um, but part of what's helped us, she's going to be young in the year, which has been the main, I suppose, consideration for us. Um, my hat goes off and up into the roof to you for um, having the capacity to homeschool. It's just not something I could could do or our family it's could do not for everyone yeah um although getting to know you and hearing about your experience I think I said to you at some point has been so helpful for me to sort of because again it's that sense of like you don't just have to do this you don't have to go there's not just one way and that's what you have to do um so to actually consider ah like we yeah there are other options out there um which I think it's important because often I feel like we kind of fast track kids you know we're gonna go to this primary school and then this high school that I went to and then you'll go to this uni because that's where you know your dad did his degree and you know it's like I think that it's so important to just pause and consider right and that's what we're doing too we're going right now this is definitely the right choice for Taj yeah Okay, but what if Emmy, you know, in a few years she's really a kid that wants to and will thrive in school? Mm -hmm. Well, then we need to reassess. And Mm -hmm. that is a super healthy process to just, like, look at your options. So while I never try to convince anyone to homeschool, I love when people can pause and reflect and go, okay, cool, it's an option. Let's think about it. No, that's not right for us. Yeah, yeah, that capacity for reflection is such a mature um skill I think you know that is lacking in a lot of workplaces and 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 maybe schools sometimes but um yeah so we have done a lot of that mulling over and um and again coming back to the idea that you said before of just letting kids be kids you know and I feel like once they start that journey of school they're in like Mm. once you're in you're in and that's the next 13 years of their life um very, very, very formative years of their life. Um, so um, a big thing for us was actually going where, you know, um, our daughter will just go to our local catchment state school, um, which is a beautiful little school um, and was actually the last school my mum taught at, which is kind of a cool, my mum was a teacher, which is kind of a cool connection, completely mm. random but lovely. Um, but, yeah, we went We went to the, they had a little prep open day and just, you know, the vibe the vibe was great it's a school that um you know clearly values um different forms of education they talked a lot about things like they have a really strong stick currency at the school so they really encourage kids to embrace nature and play with sticks and that um rather than coming from the fear base of like oh kids and sticks they'll hit each other they'll Mm. poke each other's eyes out um so, and they have, you know, they have the Stephanie Alexander cooking program and they have school chickens. And so that all felt very kind of nurturing and developmentally appropriate to us. Um, and then we also went into the, they took us into the prep classrooms, which were absolute mayhem. And I thought, <laughs> yes, this is exactly what it should be. Yeah. You know, the, the kid, there was still the home corner set up and, you know, it just looked like a an awesomely huge kindy room, mm. um, which, yeah, was really reassuring for us because it it helps us to feel like our daughter will be able to go and still be a four-and-a-half-year-old kid. You know, she won't be five for until, yeah, midway through the year. Um, 
so she can still play and learn. And, you know, all the research says that that's how kids learn, totally. you know, that's developmentally where they're at. Um, so wanting her to be able to have that experience. Um, and then I guess I've also thought a little bit too about things like, um, you know, if we get to the homework point and, and it just isn't feeling right for us, um, we're just going to not do it you know, that, that that's that's an option and the school might not like it or the teacher or what, you know. But, that, again, it doesn't just, it's like, oh, the homework set, so you just got to do it. Um, there are ways, I think, to think about, well, where is, who is my child? Where is she at and what does she need? Um, and also thinking about things like, you know, I've been really lucky to work part-time um, this, yeah, the past couple of years since I've been back from maternity leave and it's, currently under negotiation but I'm hoping to continue um, that will continue in some point it's just how much I'll work um but so I guess I'm also already thinking about the fact that for the first term semester whatever however long it takes it might be that the school week looks more like a four-day week for mm-hmm. our daughter you know that that might be what she needs um you know it will be a big jump from three days of kindy to five days of much more just structured more people, you know, all of that. So just try, totally. sort of trying to preempt and think about, yeah, how can even though we're going into this pretty defined system, how can we still make it work for us and for our family? Um, and so, yeah, I think that would be a big piece of advice that I would give to to parents is is you know to resist those external pressures, and that's a big part of it's our hard. job. Yeah, it's it's so hard, but I think that's a really underrated part of parents jobs once they have kids at school is is to be able to be that the gatekeeper a bit and I know Mm. that can go the other way into helicopter and all of that but to really resist what is expected um to just give you that bit of space to think about it and it might be that your child just loves to do all the stuff great you know and I'm thinking the only kind of reference points I have here are my own experience Mm. and also nannying Kel's boys as they went through primary school and transitioned into high school and she's done this really well and it's been really insightful to get to watch how she prioritizes her boys well-being Mm. because school is prioritizing their you know academics Mm -hmm. right like Mm -hmm. And while we hope that schools are, you know, really factoring in that well-being, mental health side of it, mm. I think it's a really critical time for parents to take that role and go, you know, okay, actually you can not do this homework today yeah. or if you don't do this homework, you're going to be more anxious come yeah. Friday when the test is here. So actually let me that's... sit with you and help you through this and that's going to look different for different children. Mm. Um, but it's really challenging when there's those pressures from the school to have good attendance. Like that goes on your report card at the end of the year. And so if your child's saying like, I need a mental health day, mm-hmm. trying to weigh those things up, mm-hmm. I really have so much empathy for parents who are doing that because I think it's a process that will have to constantly evolve week to week child to child like you can't just say here is what you need to do you know parents to make sure your child thrives in this environment which is not always going to allow them to thrive no that's right you know in this specific area Mm -hmm. so so much empathy for any parent who is on that journey and we're not there yet we will be eventually so yes and I but but I do see I work with a lot of them you know it's it's a lot of what I see um yeah parents struggling with and struggling to understand like if this is the expectation of the curriculum or of the school Mm. what is going on with my kid (laughs) you know like why is it that they seem to be struggling with it so much or um 
if there's that level of awareness at all, you know, I think some some parents can't, yeah, can't even go there. And so the kid just, the child has to figure it out, um, which is thankfully where I get to step in and, and you know, support and help. Um, but, yeah, it's no joke being a parent. <laughs> it's no, no, it's not. joke. It is not. Now, I think that's the perfect spot to wrap up. As yeah. usual, we have run way over. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> um, this has become the tone of our friendship, right? We're like, chat, 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 chat. Okay, we have no more time. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Pretty much. Let's pick it up next time. Yeah. Um, but I think that we've really captured a lot of that you know, the different stages of being the good baby and the good child and how Mm. that feeds into the good girl and the good mother and the good employee. And it kind of just never, ever stops, does it? Well, not until, not until we know more, you know, and, and yeah, we, we sort of bring that level of consciousness to, um, who we are and who our kids are. Um, but yeah, it's definitely an ongoing thing. And yeah, I think for us, it'll be like an ongoing, it's our life's work, you know, Um, sort of the undoing of some of that or the relearning. Absolutely. And while I don't think we have provided many tangible solutions, I think (laughs) just being able to like name it and talk about it and identify it is so helpful. Like this is what's going on for me right now. This is why I'm feeling pressured to make my baby stop crying or get them to sleep independently. I think that is so powerful in itself. It's the old Dan Siegel, name it to tame it. You know, it really, it really is just being able to say this is what it is and goodness me I'm not alone Mm. you know this is such a common experience particularly for women Um, but it's you know there are many good boys out there too Um, but yeah just being able to know gosh that's what that instinct is or that's what that struggle is um, I think is actually it actually is a really tangible helpful um, little bite to take away. Absolutely a perfect segue into my last question which is (laughs) Do you have any resources or books or whatever, podcasts, people to recommend to people who are on this journey and trying to, you know, understand more and bring this more into their parenting? Mm. Highly recommend the Matrescence podcast. <laughs> Stop it. I've heard good things. Number one. <laughs> um, oh, gosh. I mean, um, Dan Siegel's stuff mm. is really good and he's I just it's not dropping into my brain, but he's got an adolescent-specific one. Um, okay brainstorm i think it might be called we'll put it in the show notes yeah which is really good mm-hmm. um i there are also some yeah there are great books out there about there's one called the myth of the good girl mm. um there's one called good enough as she is um which are really insightful speak straight to it i also brought with me this book it's called the drama of the gifted child Ooh. um the search for the true self um by alice miller it's it's um it's a very kind of psyche book but but so accessible and it, it speaks directly to everything we've been talking about i could have just read you the whole book like oh, it's, i'm gonna have to read you, it yeah now. yeah it's great um and then i think you know the really accessible brene brown has a lot of great stuff on this you know vulnerability and perfectionism anything on perfectionism just ties into the i can't believe we didn't even talk about perfectionism mm. well we did right without we did with that yeah that's it um and glennon doyle for the same yes. you know very accessible um so they're probably yeah they're, they're my go-tos at the moment mm. yeah echoing all of that i love glennon doyle's yeah. book that was a game changer for me, me. and i think for a lot of yeah women untamed yeah, yeah well it doesn't talk about matrescence specifically it absolutely does absolutely so, a very common recommendation there yeah beautiful well thank you so much thank it's been you. an absolute delight to get to capture one of our conversations 
on, you know, to record it. Yeah. Because often I walk away from our chats being like, oh, I wish I could just bottle that up and share it with everyone because <laughs> yeah, I learned so much too. from you. So yeah, it's been a privilege. Very mutual. Thank you so much, Brie. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for today's conversation. If you want to hear more like this, don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. If you'd like to know more about anything we talked about or you heard on the podcast today, check out our website, www.birthofamother.com.au. You can find us on Instagram at matrescence.podcast or send us an email to info at birthofamother.com.au. If you think others could benefit from this podcast, take a screenshot of you listening to this episode to post on your social media and tag us. Alternatively, consider leaving a review with your favourite things about the Matrescence podcast. This really helps us to increase our visibility and ensure we are reaching as many women as possible. As always, thank you for spending your time with us. We hope you will tune in next time.